Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 63rd chapter of Isaiah, and it's found on page 652, 652, if you'd like to follow along in the Old Testament of your pew Bible. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to his abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their distress, it was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our New Testament lesson comes from the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, verses 10 through 18. Also, if you'd like to follow along, that's 205 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bibles. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share the same flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? As we begin a new year, it is just the flip of a page of a calendar, and it gives us great hope that perhaps in our own lives we can simply flip a page and see all things new. Allow us, O Lord, by your Spirit, to forget that which is in the past that besets us with limitation, to set aside the discouragement of those times when we failed, and instead see again your presence with us, even as we hear your word, the presence of Christ. Amen. So uh, here we are. Who's, uh, who's making resolutions for 2023? You've got some, I see some hands going up. Good for you. Good for you. It's 2023 already. Yeah, what did you do? Sleep through New Year's? Yeah, it's already here. Um, who, uh, who ate their good luck herring last night? 
Pickled herring, that's, that's, it brings you good luck in the new year. Not enough Scandinavians here, I see. Yeah, yeah good, good luck herring. Sweden, uh, areas of Poland, Old High German, uh, Danish. Um, the, the Norwegians uh, eat lutefisk on New Year's. Um, and uh, it doesn't bring luck because that means next year they'll have to eat lutefisk again. Um, but uh, we, we have our, our little traditions, a, a little kiss, you know, New Year's. New Year's Eve, Happy New Year, a little peck on the cheek, um, or a, a little bit of champagne, or, or, or too much champagne as I look around. Um, we are uh, prone, in the flip of the calendar, as I said in my prayer, uh, to, to make resolutions, but, but I think as we make those resolutions, we have a tendency to address our defects. Right? Uh, this is what I've been doing. I don't want to do it anymore. These are some things that I'm not proud of what I'm doing, and I'm going to stop doing them in the, court, in the coming year. That our resolutions tend to be focused on our deficiencies in order to become a better version of ourselves in the year to come. Um, Isaiah, I think, gives us a little bit of template as to how we can think about resolutions. Uh, Isaiah does not begin with the deficiencies of God's people in our reading today. He begins with, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord. That's where it starts. I'm going to start by thinking about the good things that God has done in our vision. When we begin the first Sunday here of 2023, I think that it is the first key in how we look forward. We look forward by recounting what God has done for us up until this point. The example from Isaiah, when, he, when this was written, uh, comes from a time when the people needed a little bit of bolstering. For 70 years, they'd been held captive in Babylonia through several different uh, uh, kings of Babylonia. And then Cyrus the Great came into position, defeating the old Babylonian Empire and put together the uh, Achaemenid uh, Medo-Persian Empire into a single unit. And uh, Cyrus had this incredible political strategy. Whenever he would conquer a land, he would tell all the foreigners who were held captive they were free. And so when he came into Babylonia, he told the Jews, go home. Go back to your gods. Go back to your land. And in fact, he not only said go home, but he also gave them safe passage by providing a corridor of military protection. But he also gave them money to be able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. What a phenomenal political strategy it is. Who are you going to fight for for the rest of your days if it isn't the person who said, you're free, you get to go. So they returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of hearing all of the stories. Their parents were little tiny kids. Even their grandparents were young. Their great-grandparents had already died in Babylonia, but all they kept hearing about were the wonders of Zion, the great walls of the city of Jerusalem, the temple with all of its gilt and all of its great tapestries and ornamentation, and they come marching to Zion up over the hill, and what do they see? 
They see the walls completely destroyed. They see the timbers that used to be the gates. They've all been taken away for firewood. Anything of any value, any metal, any precious stones, all of that has been carted off to pawn shops decades before. And the promise of what they thought they were going to see when they got there is completely deflated. It's like uh, in Chicago, you know, going with your grandparents back to the old neighborhood, right? You know, let's, let's go see what Roseland looks like or Austin or Inglewood or Woodlawn, you know? And you come back and you've heard all the stories about the wonderful stores and the beautiful schools and the great churches and all the places they used to go when they're young and you get there and it doesn't quite measure up, does it? Uh, years of absentee landlords and a lack of investment has transformed what used to be this glorious image is now only... A piece of memory. And so these individuals, these, these Jews that are returning to Jerusalem full of anticipation that this is going to be great, face the reality that it ain't so great. And Isaiah says, where do we start? We start by remembering the glorious deeds of the Lord. When we uh, started to put together the museum and the museum committee came and we talked about whether or not we were going to restore that space down on the garden level of the Ashland building, uh, one of the things that concerned me was is that it would create a glorious vision of who we used to be. Isn't it, isn't it amazing who we were back in the, in the 1960s? I mean, those, now those were some great people, right, you know? Um, they built this incredible, you know, mid-century modern space that has gone from being dated to retro. Um, <laughs> they, they, they paid for a pipe organ. Uh, Christmas Eve. I've been told that they had 17 Christmas Eve services, and every one of them involved chairs in all of the aisles, and, and people who got late had to be suspended from the ceiling. That was the way <laughs> Christmas Eve was here right and you read about those days you know one of the reasons they could pull off multiple christmas eve services here at fpclg do you know how many pastors they had when they had five christmas eve services they had five there was a time where we had a senior pastor and four associates um, we used to own five houses here in LaGrange and, you know, put them up at each one of those. And over the years, we've said, yeah, we don't need that much help. We don't need that much help. So on a ratio basis, we have as many Christmas Eve services as we do pastors, as we have always done. So when we talked about the museum, it was my fear that we would, we would essentially recapture all of Lyle Patterson's childhood memories about how wonderful church used to be. What I wanted the experience to be was not a recounting of how things were wonderful, but a recounting of how God had been faithful. Okay? 1890, that's when we were founded. We started in 1890. Do you know how many people were present to receive the first charter of our church? What was the, what was the attendance of that first congregational meeting? Do you know? Fourteen. We had twice that many last Sunday. And I think that if you were to tell those 14 people that 133 years later we would have five, six times the number of people that they did when they were founded, that we'd have over 150 on Christmas Eve, they would have been amazed. Even uh, 15 years later in 1905, the membership roles of this congregation were 171. 171 members in 1905. You know how many we've got now? Yeah, we've got about three times that many. 
So in 100 and, uh, 112 years, uh, we've tripled the size of our congregation. Right? It depends upon how you look at the large arc of God's presence and faithfulness, where you begin to settle in. I learned a long time ago to quit comparing my own physical health. You talk about comparing to others. Quit comparing yourself to yourself. When I was 24 and had spent three consecutive summers working in my dad's truck tire shop, I was in significantly better shape than I am right now. All right? I mean significantly better shape. And if I keep going back to my 24-year-old self, it's extremely discouraging. I mean, it's really depressing. I mean, like, you know, I, I haven't seen a 36-inch waist for I don't know how long. Anyway... The comparison is not about where you used to be or where we used to be. The comparison is always where was God through that entire process? How do we arrive where we are now without looking back wistfully thinking it used to be great? The starting point for our resolutions, if we're to make them at all, is not a catalog of our present inadequacies. We don't start our resolutions by saying these are all the ways that we're screwed up and so we need to figure out how to fix it. But instead, an inventory of God's consistent sufficiency. I think that's why it is important to go back. To go way back. To think through all of the occasions where you or I thought, I'm spent, I'm not going to make it, i got nothing left, I'm tired, I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm sad, and yet here we are through all of those occasions. Now, if you like your sermons uh, where you're supposed to take notes, some churches are really into that. They actually, in the bulletin, give you a, a blank scrap of paper, you know, and tell you to take notes of the pastor's sermons. Um, we don't do that. But if you like that, uh, you can take out a pen and you can write down this point. And the point one is begin your resolutions recounting the gracious deeds of the Lord looking back. Look back. Not for where you failed, not for where you used to be better, but for the spaces in which God's gracious deeds were present for you. God's presence is a ground for resolve, for resolution. Point two, if you're writing these down, Still point two, even if you're not writing them down. Um, you know, that, that, I remember I grew up in a church where we took notes, and then you put those notes in your Bible that you brought to church every week. And, and you know, over, once a year you'd take and pull out all the pieces of paper, because you never looked at them again. That's one of the reasons why I don't, don't think we need to take, take notes. But make a mental note. After you've looked back, the second one is look around. Isaiah thought it was extremely important to remind this discouraged people that the past had been made possible by a present God. God was there in their present. God is with us in our present. He's very clear. He says a messenger or an angel was not what guided them, but God's own presence with them. Now why? messengers and angels. Messengers and angels only bring a single piece of information from the one who actually has real power. Uh, the angel uh, all over uh, Matthew and Luke at the beginning of the Christmas story, right? 
What happens? Mary, is, Mary finds out she's pregnant. The angel Gabriel comes and says, you're pregnant, and it's by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to have a baby. And then where does the angel go? Poof! Gone. Okay? Uh, Joseph has a dream. Yes, your fiancé is pregnant, but it's all okay. Take her as your wife. You're going to have a baby. It's Jesus. And he wakes up, and where's the angel? The angel's gone. Um, Joseph has three such dreams. Uh, he, he falls asleep after the visit of the wise ones and says, you know, go to Egypt. And then he has another one in Egypt that says, come back home. I actually think that Joseph probably had sleep problems. Um, if you, in a period of a couple of years, have had angels in three dreams, I'm not sure how much you want to bed down for the night and feel relaxed. But in every one of those instances, the message came and it was over. The author of the book of Hebrews, which we read this morning, uh, starts his whole book by saying, the message we have is way more important than the message of angels. Why? Because main angels are only messengers. We have the actual presence of the message sender himself. We have God's presence with us. And so you look back to figure out where God has been with us in the past, but then you look around to figure out where is God with us now. That's a driving force throughout Isaiah's passage and here in Hebrews. He writes in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He then goes on in the verses that follow to say that angels are all okay, they bring messages, but they do not bring presents. They don't stick around, they don't stand next to you. As Isaiah points out, we're not reliant upon messengers that keep disappearing. We are accompanied by God who abides with us. Like the shepherds who abided in the field with their sheep, they were present. So you look back, you look around, and the third point regarding resolutions should be step ahead. Look back, look around, step ahead. Not look ahead, step ahead. Looking ahead has to do with the goal. Stepping ahead has to do with the process. Why? Because God is not present in our goals. God's not there. God happens to be with us in our steps. But our goals, our minds jump ahead to a place where God has not yet accompanied us. No wonder we fail in our resolutions. Because our resolutions have to do with some sense of arrival. I'm going to get back into those suits that have been in the back of my closet for some time, and it'll be a successful year if I get there, Unless, of course, I've lost weight because I've encountered some tragic illness. I don't think that that's necessarily a good goal. But doing something appropriate today relative to my health, that's a process, and God has promised to be with me in the process. But my goal is made without the presence of God. That's, uh, by the way, why in the narthex, this stewardship season, we're asking you to take home a compass. Take home a compass. A compass is not a map. We're not handing out maps. We're not talking about stewardship maps. We're talking about 
direction, about orientation. Figure out which way you're going to step. It's not about setting and hitting targets. It's about pointing in a direction and moving in that direction because the presence of God will also accompany us in any direction change that we have to have. If we point ourselves in one way and we know that God is present with us, we'll get nudged back on course provided we're attending to looking around and seeing where God is leading. That's why the author of Hebrews talks so much in uh, this portion of the book about suffering. This particular set of lectures that is known as the, as the letter of the Hebrews was written to a community after a period of persecution. The people had been persecuted severely by the Roman imperial forces. And the author of the book is now bringing to them comfort. What are you to make of the fact that people you knew suffered for the sake of the gospel? And his response is, what are you to make of that is that Christ suffered and was with them in their suffering. And so our own lack of courage, our own lack of stepping forward is missing the point that Christ in Christ's sufferings knows exactly what we are going through as we are going through it. Not to avoid it, not to step around it, not to shy away from it, but to know that if that is where God is taking us, God will be present with us in each of those steps, no matter how difficult they may seem. We're not alone. We're not alone. Resolutions, look back. How has God been present for you in the past, for us in the past? You know, there are a lot of things that I think you go home to that you completely forgot about how excited you were when you first got them, right? We have a dishwasher. Wow. I didn't have a dishwasher when, you know, when we first got married. You know, back, way back, way back, we didn't have a dishwasher. I was the dishwasher. Now we have a dishwasher. <laughs> and when I finally finished putting in the dishwasher and got those last little screws that you tightened to get the dumb thing level and plugged it in and it didn't leak, and I was very proud of myself. I thought, Jonathan, you are a wealthy man. You have a machine that will do your dishes. It's not a question of age. It was just a question that I lived in apartments in Hyde Park and there wasn't any place to put a dishwasher. Now we have a house in you know, East Morgan Park and there's room. All of those little things, your first car, first set of grown-up furniture where the chair actually matches the couch, all of those little moments where you thought, wow, isn't this wonderful? All those other Christmases where you opened the gift or you went shopping with the money you'd been given and said, ah, there it is. What happened to that sense of joy and blessing? What happened to that sense of sufficiency? Did you eat a reasonable meal last night? You'll probably forget about it by day after tomorrow. But when you sat down and our house looked at Lobster Newberg, eh, I'm a wealthy man. Decent, decent Trader Joe's champagne. Not bad for nine bucks, I gotta tell you. A reason for the sense of sufficiency and joy, but how quickly we forget when it becomes completely labored by our notions of failure and disappointment and insufficiency. Look back and recount the glorious deeds of the Lord. Then, look around. I mean, on one hand, just look around. I mean, you've showed up at church and there's this wonderful group of people around you, many of whom are good-looking. 
But they wanted to be with you here today in order to share in prayer and in the sacrament of the Eucharist. They wanted to be able to spend the first day of their year with you. Not alone, not at home, but together. Look around at the presence of God that is shared through the people of God wherever and whenever we may be, and then step. Not with a goal fixated, but with a direction chosen. And know that that present will continue to unfold with each one of those steps. I don't know if any of you remember the, the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Do you remember that, Presig's book? Yeah, he, he wrote it, it was back in the late 60s, early 70s. can't remember the, uh, the year of the authorship. And we waited like 60 years for a sequel. He wrote nothing else. And then he finally came out with a, single, a sequel, and boy, that was really disappointing. Um, but in the book, he's talking about a holy man in the Himalayas ascending a mountain, ascending an Everest. And he said that the only way that one can climb a mountain, and he was a mountain climber himself, an amateur rope climber, and he said the only way that you can make it to the top is if you make it through the next step. That if you are only thinking about reaching the summit, then there is only one step worth taking. And that's the last one where you arrive at your goal. I'm here. And all of the other steps are rendered insignificant by the significance of planting that flag in the final step because the goal has been attained. But if, on the other hand, you realize that the true goal of your heart is the next step, then every time you move forward, it is a reason for a sense of triumph and accomplishment. One of those steps may include the summit, but all of the other steps made it possible and were equally important. He even reflects for a moment on the absurdity of what if you left out the third step then you'd arrive at what you thought was the summit one step short. All of the steps are crucial in being able to move, and all of them are worth celebrating. For our lives and faith, God is only present in those steps we are taking now. And that is how our resolutions, how our resolve can reflect the glorious deeds of a God who has been with us in the past, the powerful presence of a God who is with us now, and the peace of a God who will abide with us through all the changes of our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please uh, stand with uh, me as we speak the words of the Apostles' Creed, and I invite you to remain standing for a brief offering meditation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection.